Welcome to Experience This, where you'll find inspiring examples of customer experience, great stories of customer service, and tips on how to make your customers love you even more. Always upbeat and definitely entertaining, customer retention expert Joey Coleman and social media expert Dan Gingas serve as your hosts for a weekly dose of positive customer experience. So hold on to your headphones. It's time to experience this. Get ready for another episode of the Experience This Show. Join us as we discuss one of the biggest annoyances in air travel, reversing a bad decision, and learning all you can about your customers. Eliminating, expiring, and understanding. Oh my. There are so many great customer experience articles to read, but who has the time? We summarize them and offer clear takeaways you can implement starting tomorrow. Enjoy this segment of CX Press, where we read the articles so you don't need to. Today's C-Express article comes to us from Mark Wilson of Fast Company, and it's entitled, Airlines Are Finally Fixing the Middle Seat. So if you've ever flown on a plane and had to sit in the middle seat, you know how horrible of an experience it can be. It's the worst. Avoid the middle seat like the plague. Exactly. And yet a third of people on the plane are sitting in this horrible seat. And recently, the uh, FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, for those not in the United States, approved a new model for a middle seat that is actually going to be put on 50 planes by the end of 2020. And the idea behind this seat is that there's a slight shift in the placement of the seat to allow for more room. It's actually a little bit lower and a little bit behind the seats on the left and uh, the seats on the right. I'm sorry, this is kind of funny. So let me get this right. You're in the middle seat and now you're going to be behind and lower than the people because you've already felt like you were behind and lower than the people. Now you're actually going to now be you're sitting. Physically, yes. You're physically <laughs> behind and lower than the other people. Well, but apparently what happens here is that that middle seat actually ends up getting widened by three inches. And that avoids, as you may recognize, Joey, the dreaded double armrest problem, which is when you're in the middle seat and you get no armrests because the guy on the left and the guy on the right are stealing them from you, this actually gets rid of that problem. Yeah. And lest anyone think we're being sexist, it always is a guy who's stealing the seat, who hasn't recognized the rule of flying, which is if you are in the middle you get both armrests. That's the rule of flying. It's not printed anywhere. You don't agree to it when you buy your ticket, but anybody who flies more than once a year knows that is the rule. Absolutely. And what is remarkable about this new seat is it doesn't actually change the capacity of the plane. So the airlines, in theory, are going to love it because it doesn't change profit. But as we mentioned before, a third of customers now have a much better experience. So crazy. And we don't know which airline this is going to be, right? No, it's undisclosed. Yeah, my gut instinct is it's not Delta. Please don't be Delta. Please don't be Delta. I I have to admit, I know this is a C-Express. 
this could almost turn into an agree to disagree because I do not think this is going to work as well as they thought. What I love about this, though, is that they've identified a key customer pain point. The people that fly in the middle seat, this has been a problem since the middle seat was created. And at the end of the day, the airlines don't charge less for the middle seat. So that customer that's sitting in the middle seat is kind of getting the short end of the straw, although now they might be getting the wide end of the seat. But nonetheless, uh, this solution I, I guess is good in the sense that they're trying to work on it. They're trying to use technology to improve the customer experience. They've done some assessments around physics and leg space and kind of how this is going to work. I'm just, uh, I'll acknowledge, uh, a bit skeptical as to how well this is going to work because also, let's think about this, you're further back and you're lower, which means if the person in the aisle seat and or the window seat is, let's say, a larger human being of in any capacity, uh, they're going to kind of spill over into your seat. Right now, those armrests that people fight over is the only thing that is really keeping everyone where they're supposed to be. With the seat being lower, I'm a little concerned they might spill over, but it's an experiment, which is one of the great things to keep in mind when it comes to customer experiment, uh, customer experience. It could be called customer experiment. We always want to be experimenting. Well, what I love about it is we often talk on this show about fixing the little pain points, because when you fix a lot of little pain points, it turns into a, a much better overall experience you know, because a lot of little point pain points add up to a lot of pain. But here, this is really trying to hit the ball out of the park. This is going after a really big problem that, if it works, is going to have a huge impact on customer satisfaction in the airline industry. And I love, I mean, when I worked in corporate America, I always loved to ask sort of the dreamer question, the what if question. And to me, the what if question here is, what if the middle seat suddenly became the ideal seat to sit in in an airplane? Like crazy, right? You can't even imagine <laughs> that. Is that is indeed crazy, my friend. And yet, I think that might be one of the things that they're going for, or at, at a minimum, it becomes the seat that you now are not really angry and frustrated that you have to sit in. Which that would definitely be a good thing. So I think the takeaway on this particular um, article is that when you use a little bit of creativity and you have technology that's available to you, most problems are solvable. This is a really big problem, and yet this is an elegant solution to it. Now, whether it works or not remains to be seen, but I love that it's something that they're trying to do, and, I, and I'm voting, by the way, although this is not an agree to disagree, I'm voting that this is going to work, and I think we're going to see this on many more planes in the future. It's shocking how often people use 38 words to describe something when two would do the trick. We're looking at you, lawyers and accountants. Words matter, and there is no excuse for trying to hide what you mean. We explore words and messaging in this next iteration of Say What? For this version of Say What, we're going to talk about one of the nasty surprises that some companies play on customers and it is expiring their rewards. So if you're part of any rewards program, as you know, you earn points or miles or cash back based on purchases or stays or essentially your loyalty to the company. And then the fun part begins. You get the opportunity to redeem those rewards. And in fact, true story, when I worked at Discover Card, we figured out by surveying customers that when they 
redeemed their cash back was actually the pinnacle of their relationship. It was the moment <gasps> it was the moment that they felt the best about Discover Card because it was free money in their pocket. Free money, folks. And, free and money. everybody likes free money. And so that redemption piece is really, really an important part of the equation. But I promised that there would be no math, but I want to explain really quickly about how rewards programs work because I, I had the benefit of, of leading the rewards program for a while at Discover. And the, it's essentially a financial conundrum of sorts in that, Joey, when you uh, fly all over the world and earn miles, those miles become a liability on the balance sheet of the airline because they're sitting out there and they owe you the value of those miles but they're not paying you until you decide to redeem. So they have to sit on the balance sheet as a liability. Well, of course, the accountants don't like this liability, and they don't like uh, the size of the liability or the possibility that everybody could redeem at once, and all of a sudden there's a huge expense um, that uh, the airline or the credit card company or what have you would have. That's why airlines uh, often limit the number of reward seats on a plane so that that doesn't happen. So all this is happening in the background. And I think the problem is, is that you've got lawyers and accountants that are creating these policies. Uh, It's okay. I'm a recovering lawyer. I can boo a lawyer comment. Exactly. So when lawyers and accountants create policies, you get something like this. And this is a real points expiration policy that I pulled down from the internet from a major hotel chain. I'm reading it to you. Members must remain active in the loyalty program to retain points that accumulate. If a member account is inactive for 24 consecutive months, that member account will forfeit all accumulated points. Members can remain active in the loyalty program and retain accumulated points by earning points or miles in the loyalty program or redeeming points in the loyalty program at least once every 24 months, subject to the exceptions described below. If a member does not maintain an active status for five consecutive years, the member's account may be deactivated. Once points are forfeited, the points cannot be reinstated, but a member can earn new points unless that member's account has been deactivated. Not all points activities help maintain active status in the loyalty program. The following activities do not count toward maintaining an active status in the loyalty program. If you're lost yet, that's actually intentional because nobody reads this stuff and it is intentionally confusing. So here's what's happened that I think has changed the game. United Airlines announced recently that they are joining Delta and JetBlue in instituting a policy that miles no longer expire. So you can earn them and keep them forever. In other words, they're taking this liability and they're willing to hold on to it until you decide to redeem, whether that's next week, next month, or next decade. I am so glad that you kept talking after you read that mind-numbing coma-inducing points expiration policy, Dan, because let's be candid, this is why people don't like lawyers. Right right there, folks. You just saw right there why there are so many lawyer jokes. It's a horrible policy. It is not customer-friendly. It is not customer-centric. There's probably three people in the entire business that understand what the actual rules of the program are. And let's stop and think about this. This is called a loyalty program. Companies want us to be loyal to them. But let me explain how our loyalty program works. We have the right to, when we choose, at our discretion, kick you out of the loyalty program. We have the right to take all the dollars that you've spent on us that we told you were worth things, were worth points, were worth prizes, and later 
retract those if you have not done enough business with us in a short enough amount of time. Like, what have you done for me lately? Yeah, exactly. And what's crazy about this entire setup is it increases the adversarial nature between the company and the customer. It makes, on one hand, it's saying, no, 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 spend time with us, spend money with us, we'll show you the love. But if it's not on our terms, when we want it, how we want it, then we're going to kick you out. We're gonna forfeit the past things. You know, what drives me crazy about this is, uh, in the sample you read, if an account is inactive for 24 consecutive months, a couple things can happen. Number one, I know a lot of folks when they have children, for example, their travel patterns change. So for example, when my sons were born, I took significant time off from traveling and I started to do things more remotely because I knew I would never get that time back. So my hotel stays, my airline miles, all of those things went down for a period after they were born. Now, was it 24 months? No, but it was significant enough that if there were certain thresholds that I had to maintain, I wasn't gonna be able to maintain those because of a life event. What about people who move? What about people who are dealing with an illness, either themselves or of a loved one? Uh, what about people that their home airport changes because they move to a different location or maybe they're assigned a different territory and now the territory they work in doesn't have a hotel in that chain that they used to stay at. And now despite years and years of behavior, they're being penalized. And no, I don't have a personal experience with this. Oh, just kidding, I do. It was with a brand that sounds a lot like Filton Hotels. It was not Filton Hotels, but I had over 100,000 points with them that I had accumulated and I was staying regularly. And then because of some change in travel and some change in circumstances, I went and I believe at the time it was a year without staying in one of their hotels and they forfeited all my points. When I later went to, in about month 13, book a, uh, a stay at one of their hotels and I reached out to check and see like how it was gonna affect my point structure, they informed me that I didn't have points. They didn't inform me that my points were about to expire. They said they sent a letter, right? Right, right exactly. Oh, checks in the mail, folks. Uh, but there was no communication and I, and I pressed them on this. I said, you had my email, you had my phone number. I've been a loyal customer for years. Why would you do this? And they said, well, sir, if you'll review our policy on points expiration, you will see at which point I said, you have guaranteed I will never stay at one of your hotels again. That was 10 years ago. I would rather stay 50 miles away from the event and drive in from my preferred hotel chain, Marriott, than to stay at that competitor's brand. And it was all because how they treated me with my loyalty points. Yeah, I mean, people, obviously, we can hear in your voice, people get emotional. Yeah, I have no feeling. I have no strong feelings about this. None, none. <laughs> and, and again, we gotta, we gotta keep in mind, folks, that these are loyalty programs for a reason. They reward your loyalty. And just because your circumstances change doesn't necessarily mean that you're not loyal anymore. It means that you may not be able to travel as much or you may be using a different card for one reason or another. Uh, and the, you mentioned before that, that it might have been a year, might have been 18 months, might have been 24 months again. That's part of the problem with these policies is that lawyers know that nobody reads them. And yet the fallacy there is that the lawyers would actually prefer that people read them because if people read them, they'd understand them and they would not. you wouldn't have to have that conversation with the customer service agent about, well, did you read paragraph 13D section you know, two. Um, but 
we, but most of these policies and procedures or terms and conditions in whatever business you're in are written with no marketing language, with no friendly communication. I remember one of the things that I did in one of my jobs was we were forced by the lawyers to give this really long set of terms and conditions. And so I put it online and I made sure that every time there was a word that the lawyer made me use that I knew customers didn't understand, I put a hyperlink to a definition so that at least I was making it easier for customers to understand this intentionally confusing language. Well, and what's crazy about this is why do they have different things that qualify for points and different things that don't? My theory is if I'm spending a dollar with you, whether it's in this hotel example for room service or my room or to uh, host a meeting there, all of these things should qualify as points. There's really no, uh, at least in my opinion, logical reason for these complicated point structures. Just make it simple, make it easy to understand, make it easy to get your customer into the chase. So here's what all these loyalty programs are really about. They're about creating such an affinity, such a connection, such a desire for the prizes that the customer will continue to come back for more, that they will continue to spend more. What better way to convince someone to spend more than to make every dollar they spend count? I think this is the way to do it. And it drives me crazy that not only do they make these policies confusing, but the whole kicking you out or eliminating your points. I mean, we've talked about this on the show many times. Customer onboarding is incredibly important, but so is customer offboarding. How you treat customers on the way out really matters. And if you want your customers to not speak ill of you and almost a decade later be referring to your brand uh, in a podcast and speaking negatively about it, then you might want to think a little bit how you about how you treat them on the way out. Totally agree. So the takeaway here. Look for examples in your policies and procedures. Look at your legal disclaimers. Look at anything that is using archaic customer unfriendly language or that has archaic customer unfriendly rules and see if you can change them to improve the experience. Sometimes all it takes is a single question to get your company thinking about an improved customer experience. Here's an idea for how you can start the conversation. This week's Start the Conversation topic is bots in the contact center. Bots are all the buzz around customer interactions. They offer extended functionality and they enable customers to find answers or support without the involvement of a live agent. However, without a defined strategy, a bot implementation can create a negative experience and lead to frustration for customers, agents, and executives. Here are four key considerations when planning bot experiences. First, don't try to fool the customers. They know when they are interacting with a person or an AI, so be transparent at all times. Number two, focus on creating a conversational interaction with customers. Making the interaction seem natural and seamless is really important. Number three, ensure your bot is capable of actually helping customers. Integrating the bot with other data sources and platforms is key. And number four, while you may experiment with bots, 
Don't jump 100% in to only bot interactions. You need to bring your customers up and introduce this concept of an AI-driven support solution slowly so they can catch up to where the technology is. Yeah, and that's the one I want to talk about because I feel that too many companies look at bots as an opportunity to save customer service cost, and that is not what they should be doing. Bots can be great for answering repetitive questions like how many calories in a Big Mac, for example, basically things that people can Google. But it's really important that bots can quickly and seamlessly hand off to a human agent for more complicated matters. And in particular, I think the best usage of bots is actually not in helping customers, but in helping agents find the information that they need so that they can do they can spend more time with the human-to-human interaction with the customer. For more great content on the bot experience, visit experienceconversations.com. That's experienceconversations.com. And now for this week's question, have we fully explored the role that bots play in our customer interactions? We're excited to give you an overview of an important book you should know about, as well as share some of our favorite passages as part of our next book report. Today's book report is from a customer experience expert whom we have not featured before on the show. Her name is Annette Franz, and she is the founder and CEO of CX Journey, Inc., which is a global customer experience strategy consulting firm. And she's also an executive board member of the Customer Experience Professionals Association. So she knows her stuff, and she has a brand new book, out uh, September 4th that is called Customer Understanding. So as we like to do with book reports, we've asked Annette to share with us an overview of the book, and here she is. So the name of the book is Customer Understanding, Three Ways to Put the Customer in Customer Experience and at the Heart of Your Business. So as you can imagine, I write about those three ways to put the customer into customer experience. Um, you know, the book is about uh, so much more than that, but um, but that is really the heart of the book, <laughs> pun intended. Um, I do start off the book with, you know, building the business case for this thing called CX, right? But I do spend a lot of time with those three ways to put the customer in customer experience. So listening, characterizing and empathizing. Those are the three ways. Now, listening is obviously about listening to your customers. I don't go into survey design, but I go into really more about how to use what you hear, how to use your customer data to obviously um, put the customer at the heart of your business. And then personas are the characterization, right? So I talk a little bit about personas. And then the third um, is empathize, which is really all about journey mapping and my journey mapping process. And so obviously the three of them are all very closely tied to Together and they have to be. Um, and then I think the the last third of the book is all about how do you conduct journey mapping workshops, both current state and future state? How do you conduct uh, service blueprint workshops? And really the how-to. I've had people ask me over the last several years, hey, is there a book out there that helps me do this, that, that helps me do it right? And in the back of my head, I'm going, it's coming, it's coming. And you know what? It's here. And so so that's um, really the meat of the book toward the end of the book, maybe, like I said, the last third. And I'm really excited to share my my, my process and the way that I do things. You know, I really liked how Annette 
distilled down the customer experience into the three pieces of listening, characterizing, and empathizing. I think that really makes it clear. And the listening part obviously is close to my heart because today a lot of companies are listening via social media because it is the world's greatest um, array of commentary about your brand. And, uh, and the thing about listening, though, is you have to take what you hear and, first of all, assemble it in some way that makes sense because just getting a report of every tweet or every Facebook post about your brand uh, doesn't help you distill the meaning or the, the different problems or issues that have come up. But also it's really important that you don't stop at listening because the listening part is the enabler to improving your experience, either by creating new products or bettering something that is uh, wrong with your current product or service. But customer listening is something we should all do all the time in every channel. One of the things that we used to do at Discover Card that I loved was every executive was required to do telephone call listening at least once a month. And we'd all sit together in a room and we'd listen to random calls. We wouldn't let the call centers cherry pick. And then we'd comment on both the how the agent did, but also on the nature of the problem that the customer had to see if there was a way that we could figure out how to improve it and cause fewer people to call in with the same problem. I couldn't agree more, Dan. I think listening is something that we all know we should do, uh, not only in our professional lives, but in our personal lives as well. But we don't spend as much time in active listening and really taking what we learn and acting on it as we could. Uh, The element that uh, Annette shared that I really liked was the empathizing piece. I really think that empathy is going to become in the next decade Uh, the distinguishing element of customer experience. As we increase uh, more technology, more automations, more AI, empathy is one of the areas where humans can really stand out. And yet as important as empathy is, we don't teach it. We don't teach it in school. There aren't a ton of books that have been written about it. And most organizations' uh, definition of empathy usually feels like something along the lines of, well, we have a voice of the customer program, so that counts as empathy. And it's like, no, it doesn't count as empathy unless you actually act on these things. You know, the listening component isn't enough uh, by itself. So I really like the way that Annette kind of makes it a a three-pronged approach of listening, characterizing, and empathizing. Uh, You know, I think it would be useful for us to dive into the actual passage from the book or the actual text of the book. So we asked Annette to share one of her favorite passages. Here's Annette. Journey mapping is the most critical and pivotal component in any customer experience transformation. An in-depth understanding of the experience today, what's going well and what isn't, is the only way to really drive change going forward. This is what journey maps provide and hence why journey maps and the journey mapping process are often called the backbone of customer experience management. What do I mean by that? Take a look at the diagram on the next page. And of course, you can't see that diagram, but there is a diagram in the book. As you can see from the diagram, journey mapping informs and supports so many parts of your customer experience strategy that it is literally the backbone. And those parts include executive alignment. So I go into a little bit of detail about how the journey map and journey mapping process supports that. The brand promise, organization adoption and alignment, employee experience, customer understanding, and process improvements. So for each one of those six, I go into a little bit of detail on how um, those are all informed by journey mapping and vice versa. Um, So that's 
probably one of my favorite passages in the book, again, because it's it's the first time that I've actually put it all into writing and into a graphic and, and I'm able to share it through this book. So I hope you enjoy it as well. So on The Experience Show, you don't just get the author's favorite passage, you also get Dan and Joey's favorite passage. So here is my favorite quote from Customer Understanding. Don't just ask customers about the experience, listen as well. Let customers tell you about their needs and desired outcomes and how well you are performing against their expectations in whatever method or channel they want to. Example listening approaches include online reviews, social media, ethnographic research, and immersion programs, customer advisory boards, and voice of the customer through the employee. Another way you can listen is via the breadcrumbs of data that customers leave everywhere they touch your business, on the website, customer service calls, purchase transactions. In other words, operational, behavioral, and transactional data are another way to listen to your customers. Again, we keep coming back to that concept of the importance of listening and all the different ways we can do it. You know, my favorite passage uh, was a a little more of a call to action, or at least as I saw it. Uh, And I'm quoting Annette here from the book. Customers can't and won't take it anymore. It's time to shift the focus. It's time to put the customer in customer experience. But you can't just say, we're going to do CX and then do CX. There's more to it than that. Transforming the customer experience is much more complex than that simplified command. Transforming the customer experience requires a culture shift, a mindset shift, a behavioral shift. And that shift needs to come from or start from the top, from the executive staff, from your CEO. Folks, if we don't lead into the customer experience, we have no hope of achieving the customer experience. So check out Customer Understanding by Annette Franz on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Wow! Thanks for joining us for another episode of Experience This. We know there are tons of podcasts to listen to, magazines and books to read, reality TV to watch. We don't take for granted that you've decided to spend some quality time listening to the two of us. We hope you enjoyed our discussions, and if you do, we'd love to hear about it. Come on over to experiencethisshow.com and let us know what segments you enjoyed, what new segments you'd like to hear. This show is all about experience, and we want you to be part of the Experience This Show. Thanks again for your time, and we'll see you next week for more Experience This.